What a sweet hymn of God's grace. Thanks, Jerry. That was awesome. Thank you for being here this morning. I know when they promised you 75 degree weather this afternoon, some of you might have been thinking about this would be a good weekend to go to the lake. So thank you for being here. Uh, they've got COVID at the lake. You want to be here instead. This is, this is better. Uh, we're going to look at Philippians chapter 4 today. And uh, this is one of uh, that series of looking through this great, great book. As a matter of fact, one of the things that I found through the years, I don't know if you've ever had this happen, but sometimes I'll be going through my regular quiet time routines and reading through the scripture or doing whatever, and I just need recharging of my soul. I need something. And so once in a while, I've just pulled out of whatever the regular reading was and just jumped in at Philippians and just found water. Like the song was just singing about that just floods the soul and just gives you that sense of, okay, this is what God's up to. What a great privilege. So today we're going to be reading verses 10 to 20. We'll be looking at the context of the entire chapter four uh, and keeping in mind the entire book as we're thinking it through as to what God has in store for us here. But let me read verses 10 to 20, and then we're going to pray and dig into the scriptures. But uh, we're grateful to be able to have the time in the word this morning. After a great time of having our hearts prepared in worship, in song, then we get to worship now in the word. Verse 10, chapter 4 of Philippians. But I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now, at last, you've revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Nevertheless, you have done well to share with me in my affliction. And you yourselves also know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel, after I departed from Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, but you alone. For even in Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once for my needs. Not that I speak, not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek for the profit which increases to your account. I've received everything in full. Have an abundance. I'm amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you've sent, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. And my God shall supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Now to our God and Father, the glory be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, may we live in the awareness day by day, moment by moment, that you are the God who provides abundantly beyond all that we could ask or think. And therefore, Father, may our contentment and our peace and our rest not be contingent upon the circumstances in the storms that rage on the surface of life, but, Father, may our contentment and our peace and even our happiness be wrapped up in who you are and what you've done for us in Christ. So, Lord, speak now as we open your word together, for Christ's sake. Amen. To start our passage in our thinking this morning, i just ask a general question for you, and then as you would answer for the church. Do you consider yourself to be content? Are you a contented people, and are you personally a contented individual? Now, I, I have to answer that honestly. It's like, yes, well, no. But yes, well, sometimes, well, maybe, 
but not always, you know, and you go back and forth and you think, well, what is your real answer here? The problem is we have lost our connection with the word enough, right? We don't know what enough means anymore. And so there's always just a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more that we want. And we're not sure how to process a world in which we've been instructed always to be getting more of whatever it is. Now, this week I had a chance to, to test whether I knew what that meant or not. It was an unusual circumstance, and I uh, hope you'll indulge me for a moment as I tell you what happened. About three or four weeks ago, I got an email from a pastor in Jamaica. An invitation to come preach? No, it wasn't that. It was a letter. He said, I read your book, and he told which book it was. He said, and I found it such a blessing. I would love to share that with the 250 pastors that I oversee here in our denomination. Is it possible that you could help us get copies of the books for all of the guys? I'm thinking like, isn't that sweet and isn't that presumptuous? <laughs> I mean, you know, but it was sweeter more than was presumptuous. I started thinking, okay, I get an author's discount for that book, but I don't know, still, if I got 250 books, even at the author's discount, that's going to be a lot of money. So I started thinking, how can I do that? So I wrote him back and we started back and forth and they said, well, we will pay for the shipping of the book. If you could help us with a purchase of it, that would be really helpful. So, well, I'll see what we can do on this end. And then the, the kicker for me was, you know, is he legit or is this some kind of scam? That's a weird scam trying to scam a pastor for a book. I mean, that's not exactly a lucrative scam if he's up to that. So I'm thinking, okay, maybe there's something here. I looked it up. It's like, he's legit. And he said, well, my wife and I would cover the difference somehow or another. If you can cover what you can, we'll try to come up with a way to handle the other. And I said, okay, he's serious. So this past week, what was it, Monday or Tuesday of this week, uh, send out an email to, we, we have a ministry called Equip for Life, and, and send out a, an email to the people on our email mailing list. Hey, here's what's come up. Is there anybody out there who would be willing to help us get these books for these pastors? Send. Fifteen minutes went by, and I get my first email was, uh, "I'll take care of the buying of the books." I was going like, "I must have put the decimal in the wrong place," because he may be thinking two hundred thousand, and it's I mean two hundred dollars, and it's two thousand uh, dollars. You know, is he, is he serious? And then he actually put the number in there. I will pay for the books, and I'll send you a check for the two thousand. Well, okay, okay, this is good. And now all that guy has to do is cover the shipping. Within. 30 minutes, another email. Look, I saw that and uh, we're going to send $500 to you to help with whatever the costs are. Wow. Okay. Within a few minutes after that, another one. We're going to send $300 to help. Well, that's the books paid for and all the shipping costs covered. And then Kathy and I were away for the rest of the morning, came back around lunchtime. And uh, during that interval, we had several other emails. Another person says, I'll take care of all of it. Books and shipping. Another person, well, I'll, I'll send over the house. You know, and we're just going like, we need to get a second email out. <laughs> and here's what we had to send out. Stop giving. <laughs> now, no pastor worth his salt ever says <laughs> stop giving. But we had to. Why? Because there's this word. What was it? Enough. God had provided abundantly beyond all that we could ask or think. He had provided more than enough. Now we have to go back to him and say, okay, now that you gave, we've got more than that. You gave it for this specific purpose. Uh, we have some other projects. 
if you want to help. But, uh, but that one, and, you know, if you want us to send the check back, we will. We sent that information back out. Some of us said, hey, we don't care. Use it however you need to. I like the way you talk. <laughs> Enough in God's eyes is contained in these verses. God is saying, I am the God who supplies all of your needs according to my riches and glory in Christ Jesus. So here's the problem. We're, we're watching a transition in our nation right now. The, the economic return is on the way. It has nothing to do with stimulus packages or anything else. The, the nation is making its comeback in various ways economically, and, and things are beginning to look up. But here's the problem. We're a nation of malcontents, and the word enough doesn't factor into our vocabulary. So what are we going to do? How, how are we going to pull this thing off? What, what's going to happen next? How are we going to get to the place, not just in the nation, but how are we going to manage it within the body of Christ to be able to start demonstrating that we have a God for whom enough is not even enough. He is the God of abundance. And he will provide. Now, this is not a prosperity message. Let me just quickly jump in there with that. This is not just saying, well, if you know you give, you know, God will multiply it a hundredfold. And you, you know, I'm not saying that at all. It's not this message at all. But what I am saying is that God has said, I will supply all of your needs according to my riches and glory in Christ Jesus. I'm going to do that. The psalmist, David, in the 23rd Psalm, says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. In other words, I will not be in need when God is my shepherd. He carries me. He takes care of me. And he does what he needs to do for me to be what he's called me to be. So how much is enough for us to live lives of contentment? It's coming to terms with what God has taught throughout his word and what Paul specifically summarizes in these few verses here in Philippians chapter 4. How do we, as the people of God, begin to live lives of contentment? A lot of times we think, well, those people are content because they don't have any choice but to be content. They're not very talented. They have a very low capacity. They're not, you know, they can't be ambitious because they can't be ambitious about something they couldn't possibly pull. And so the people who settle are the ones who don't have any choice. Well, what about those who are incredibly gifted, incredibly capable, and have tremendous capacity who are content in Christ? See, our culture doesn't understand what to do with those people. We call them followers of Christ. And I am commending to you today a message from the Apostle Paul that says, and such must be some of you. Such must be all of us as we come to know the fullness of Christ. Now, let's face it. Discontentment is our natural state. We're sinners by nature. And with that sinful nature is this DNA piece called discontentment. And the only way we can gain contentment is to do what Paul says here. We must learn to be content. For I have learned to be content, whatever the circumstances in which I find myself. So how do we learn to be content? How, how do we process that? The, the lessons of contentment are there for us to be learned. And the lessons of contentment, we have to learn. We don't just know them. This is something that is evidence of a brand new spiritual life. This is something that God does in and through us. So he wants to make us men and women of contentment. So he says in verse 11, not, I'm not talking to you about want. I'm commending you for the gift you gave, great, but I'm not trying to 
primed to pump for your next gift. He says, that's not what I'm saying. I've learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. So he says, Christ-centered living, according to verses 6 and 7, brings with it a peace that surpasses all comprehension. And then 11 and following talks about this contentment that is a godly contentment that endures through whatever the circumstances that we find ourselves in. So how, how do we learn that? Well, what happens is that we lose his peace and we forfeit our contentment when we get life turned upside down and backwards. Now, verses 1 to 9 give us the framework for what Paul is saying. So when he gets to verse 10, and says, Now, I, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly. But what, Paul? Well, verses 1 to 9. He says, you, you've got this pattern that I've laid out for you. And here's what's happened. We have taken the pattern of verses 1 to 9, and we flipped it on its ear. And so when he's talking about one thing, we have substituted the word instead and ended up with a way that most of us are living in our age. And so in verse 1, he talks about uh, this, this great commitment to standing firm in the Lord, but we have found it instead easier to give up and compromise and not stand firm. And in verse 2, uh, he's talking about, 2 and 3, talking about a couple of women in the church who uh, need to learn how to live in harmony with each other. What's going on? They're having it out. I mean, if the Apostle Paul has to say, hey, Yodia and Seneca, cut it out. <laughs> Whatever's going on between you two, you need to live, learn to live in harmony. We've, we've figured out that adversarial relationships and holding grudges and unforgiveness is okay as long as we keep it to ourselves. And Paul's saying, no, it's not. No adversaries, harmony. That's what I'm looking for. Don't, don't flip it upside down. We, we come to a third piece in verse four. It, it says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I'll say rejoice. We have replaced grumbling and complaining with rejoicing. Rejoice in the Lord always when it's going well for you. No. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, he says, I'll, I'll say it. Rejoice. I, I love this. There's very few Greek words that just kind of stick into a, a, a person's head, but, but there's a word that sounds like grumbling. The, the Greek word is gongudzo. Don't gongudzo. What, what is that? Don't grumble. Don't complain. What it is when you grumble and complain, what you're doing is insulting God by saying, whatever you've provided for me is clearly not enough for me, and I need something different. You blew it on my part, God. So let's get your game together and give me what I want, or else I'm going to complain and grumble and gripe instead of rejoice. We, we flip it. And it's not what God's designed for us to be able to have peace and contentment. We, we find that we are demanding. Instead of verse 5, where it says that we're supposed to have this forbearing spirit, this gentle reasonableness about ourselves. We, we become demanding. I've got to have what I want when I want it, and now is the time I want it. Then we come to that verses 6 and 7 part. Don't be anxious about anything. Let's close in prayer. No. <laughs> what? Are you not, God, are you not reading the paper? I mean, do you not know what all is going on? How can you say don't be anxious or do not be worried about anything? He says, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, let your requests be made known to God with thanksgiving. That's verse 6. But what we have found is that, God, you may not pay attention as well as we pay attention, so we're going to worry for you. 
So we'll be anxious on your part because we know in heaven you're wringing your hands going, what am I going to do? No, he's the sovereign God. He says, so instead of worrying and being anxious, why don't you take all the things that are concerning you, and First Peter says it casts all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. And then when you have done that, verse 7 says, and then the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. We kind of get it flipped. And then lastly, he says in verses 8 and 9, don't let your imaginations run wild on you. He says, think about the things that are true, the things that are honorable. Think, Think about the things that are pure and lovely and of good repute. And if there's any excellence, anything worthy of praise, think about that stuff. Instead of starting your day checking out to find the next thing that's going to bother you, Start your day thinking about the thing that is going to soar with your soul into the heavenlies in the presence of Christ. Practice these things, he says. Talking about all verses 1 to 8. Practice these things. This is what you need to do. The things you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice them. And then the God of peace will be with you. So that's all prelude to verse 10. So then when we get to verse 10, Paul introduces this theme of contentment. And as we're starting to break this down and think it through, uh, let me kind of give you an outline of where we're going. Because what happens here is that there are wrong things and then there are right things. According to this passage and our experience in the balance of Scripture. He says, so what happens is that as you are trying to learn contentment, there are going to be some times when you are content with things you ought not be content with. You're content with the wrong things. And then there are sometimes you're going to be discontent with the wrong things, things that God's provided for you and you're not satisfied with them and you're discontent with it and it's a gift from God and you ought not be discontent with that. So he says that's when we get the values upside down. So you're content with the wrong stuff and you're discontent with the wrong stuff. But in Christ, we can be content with the right stuff and discontent with the right stuff. So everybody totally confused now. All right, good. Because I got you between now and when we're finished. Let's dig into it. Let's find out what he has to say for us. He says, this is simple. He says, we learn God's contentment only when we know when and how he wants us to be content. And when we find our satisfaction exclusively in Christ. We sing in Christ alone. Christ only. He alone is my sufficient. We sing that. We can state that. Paul's saying, now let's practice these things. Let's, let's set ourselves up to actually become people of contentment. Well, if we've got it backwards, it's not going to happen. The starting off point is when we get it backwards, that means we're apart from Christ. And so we begin by being content with the wrong stuff. And that leads to complacency. We're complacent about the state of affairs that should say to us, whoa, 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 wait a minute, wait a minute. Um, you shouldn't be satisfied with that. You, you should not be content to let that go on. Now, there's all kinds of examples of this, and we'll look at some of them as we walk through this. But, but let me just cite one to begin with, where it's sort of those teachings of Jesus that we hear them, we know them, we can recite chapter and verse, and we know what's there. But somehow or another, we have chosen to be selectively obedient. We choose to obey those things which are the big-ticket items, and kind of ignore the other stuff. Not, not really an option given to us. 
So what happens when we are, when we find ourselves content with the wrong stuff, we begin by being, we're content with too little obedience, far less than he would desire of us. So, so what does that look like? Let's pick, pick one passage, Matthew 25. Remember Jesus saying, hey, I was hungry, you fed me. I was in prison, you came. I was clothed, uh, was naked, and you clothed me. I, I was hungry, thirsty, all those things. He said, you did this for me, and the disciples are going like, you guys remember doing that? I don't remember doing that. Did you do that? I don't remember that. And Jesus says, no, inasmuch as you did it to the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. We're going, good talk, Jesus, good talk. Anybody going to do anything about it? We're, we're busy with other issues of obedience, and so we'll get to that one day. No, we're, we're content to just let something like that slide. And, and we're so concerned sometimes with the big picture, we miss the details of this. So we got a, a huge lesson, wake-up call in this, several years ago in, in Raleigh at our church. Um, the 11th grade girls Sunday school class wanted to do a project for the spring, ministry project. One of the young ladies in the class, named Katie, had a younger sister, just a few years younger, who had uh, some challenges. She, she was a special needs sister. And uh, she said to the girls in her class, she said, you know what? Um, <clears throat> maybe we can do something for my sister and her friends. What, what, what can we do for them? Well, see, we're, we're planning for our proms at our schools. You know, we're getting our evening gowns and we're getting all the stuff ready and we're doing all the stuff and, you know, hoping the right person to ask us out and all that kind of stuff. Um, my sister's never going to be asked to the prom. As a matter of fact, there will never be a prom in her experience. Uh, she won't be on the homecoming court. <laughs> she probably won't be able to be in a position where she will ever be able to be listed on the honor roll of academic achievement. She's not going to ever be athletic. She's, she's always going to be outside of things. What if we do some kind of prom for my sister and her friends. That's a good idea. Let's talk about what that would look like. And so they talked to the youth pastor who just sort of went, wow, that's actually paying attention to the details of Matthew 25. That's, that's actually, that's seriously good. So he did some checking and there was a church up in Kentucky that had done something similar years before, and he contacted them, found out what they had done. And what ended up happening is that we planned what came to be known as the joy prom. If you've never heard of the joy prom, you need to get familiar with the joy prom. I hate, I hate to say this here in a Baptist church, but what we did, we moved all the chairs out of our worship center so there could be dancing. <clears throat> I, I love what one guy said. He says, well, can Baptists dance? He says, well, some can, some can't. I, I don't know. Um, <laughs> So you got to understand that. But, but we, we did this. And so what started as, as the 11th grade girls Sunday school class, next thing you know, we're, we're all in. I mean, there's, there's like, yeah, how are we going to get the word out? Word got out. Through parks and recreation and, and the city, word got out. Through, through other churches, word got out. Next thing you know, we've got 300 special needs folks coming to our joy prom. <laughs> it's like, Hello. Uh, every one of them, there's a plan. Every one of them will have an escort through the evening, which means that we've got to have an escort. We've got a long line of people as they're coming in. And I promise you, this is the coolest thing ever. Had red carpet coming out of the front of the building to the curb. Limos were coming up and kids were getting out. And this Kate's sister, uh, she got out of the limo. I mean, she is loving this thing. 
we had probably a dozen people out there with flash cameras, you know, so the paparazzi is going off whenever they get out and there's applause whenever they come. They come in and they're signed in and then they're given an escort for the evening. I've never been prouder of our elders and their wives and deacons and their wives. They're in this long line waiting for their special needs person for the night. And then they would be matched up and they would be with them for the evening. Uh, Chick-fil-A provided food for the evening. Uh, That was product placement. Uh, And uh, this Sunday, they're not going to feed me anyway. So anyway... We, we saw this shoes shined for the boys who were coming in. We made an appeal to the church. If you have evening gowns sitting in the closet somewhere or, or prom dresses or something, let us know. We, we got, what, 800 or 1,000 dresses came in. We didn't have anywhere near that many girls. But, but the girls, if they didn't have one, they would come and they would be able to be fitted and come. And then there was a makeup place for the girls to be fixed. And the photographers came in and did prom photos for free. It was unbelievable. It was better than my prom. And it was awesome. And so we did this for a few years, and then we, it ended up, I guess it started averaging about 500 a year were coming to this thing throughout the city. And in the middle of it, there would be a gospel presentation and, and a lot of the caregivers who came with them, and sometimes the parents would stick around. And it was just a night of tears and being choked up all evening with joy. Why? Because Jesus told us to do it. I don't remember Jesus saying we're supposed to have a prom. No, the second year, one of the local news stations sent a reporter with a little film crew and stuff over there. And they said, could we, could we arrange to talk to the pastor? We want to do an interview on, online for him to be able to put that on evening news. I said, you don't want to talk to me. You want to talk to Katie. She's the girl in the orange dress right over there. So the news crew goes over. Katie doesn't know it's coming. Next thing you know, she's got a microphone stuck in her face and a camera in front of her thinking like, oh boy, what is she going to do? Question, what prompted you guys to do this? Katie didn't even bat an eye. So I'll tell you why. Luke chapter 14, verses 12 to 14. And she starts quoting verbatim. Here's what she, she quote. I don't remember. I haven't memorized this. I don't know. Katie knew it cold. She said, when you give up a, a luncheon or a dinner, don't invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and repayment come to you. When you give a reception, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you'll be blessed since they don't have the means to repay you. And then you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. That's why we're doing it. Go, girl. (laughs) Okay, she was not interested in settling for and being content with a little obedience. We can't be either. We can't settle for thanking Jesus teachings as suggestions for how we might want to think about improving our lives. Obedience too little leads to complacency, which means that we're content with the wrong, with the wrong stuff. We can't do that. And so what happens is we find that we're content to allow the lost to remain lost. We know better. We know what awaits them. But we're not ready to be obedient enough to share the gospel with them or figure out how we can do so in an effective way. Too little obedience. We leave the defenseless without a voice. Whether abused or aborted or whatever, we, we just leave them without a voice in the mix as we in the body of Christ choose to be less than obedient than we could have been to step up the game to do what we need to do. 
We let the hungry stay hungry. We let the imprisoned stay alone. We let the sick figure out how to get well. We, we figure out that um, poor people are always going to be with us, so what can we do? And so we, we take a lot of what Jesus has taught us, and we're content to just kind of go, you know what? I just need to make sure I'm having my quiet time in the morning. I'm at church on Sundays. That's it. Yeah, too little obedience. That is upside down. So we, we want to make sure that we're not content with too little obedience. And secondly, we, we want to be content because that happens when we've been content with too little of Christ. If we have too little of Christ in our lives, we, we have just a little dab of Jesus. That's not what he's calling us to. We can't have too little of Christ. We can't find ourselves, as Matthew 15, Jesus says it this way, this people honor me with their lips, but their, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are but the rules taught by men. They've kind of figured out what they want to do. They've taught that as if that were all there is to it. And they are not worshiping me or following me. And I am perimeter at best excluded all the more likely. So we're content to leave our Bibles on the shelf. I bet every house in here. Every house represented, you probably got a stack of Bibles somewhere. I do. It's embarrassing for me. Uh, we were repainting and redoing my study last year, and uh, I've got like three stacks of Bibles. You've heard people say, well, I swear on a stack of Bibles. Well, I got the stacks. You know, I've, I've got three or four different stacks of Bibles around there. And uh, yeah, I just think, wow. But we're, are we content to leave our Bibles on the shelf? Are we content to worship with words? So our worship is from the lips out. Are we content to pray with dry eyes and passionless pleas? Are we willing to confess sin without any real regret, repentance, or sorrow? God, forgive me of all my sins. Could we name a couple? All of them. I want to know if you know what they are. Let's, let's confess them because if we don't confess them with specificity, we're probably going to repeat them with great dispatch. We'll keep doing them again and again and again. We've got to see them as the cause for our Savior going to the cross. We have a Savior. And we're content with having him as Savior, but we're not sure we're ready to have him Lord and Master over all things in our lives. So we want to believe rightly, but we don't want to behave righteously. I was on a conference call this, this past week with a group of pastors from around the country, and, and I, I had no idea what was cooking it. And one of the, the guy who was moderating it says, okay, are any things that you guys, we got, we got an hour in our meeting left. Anything you guys want to talk about that you're dealing with in your churches that maybe we should know about, pray about, or maybe talk about with you. And uh, there was, you know, silence. What pastor with a bunch of other pastors is going to admit that he's having problems? Praise Jesus. It's all fine with me, you know? Well, good, but it may not always be the truth. And so one brave brother after about 30 seconds said, um, I'm just wondering if anybody else is having this happen. He said, uh, we're getting killed at our church by people who want the right thing, but are going about it in a totally ungodly way. And they're mad at me because I wouldn't take a pulpit stand in the recent elections. 
to come out for a Democrat or Republican candidate, and, and they think that it's my responsibility to do so, whereas the Scriptures, I preach Christ and Him crucified, not Republican or Democrat, to be elected. That's not my calling. And, and so they're mad at me, and they want to they wanna either fire me or find another church. And I'm listening to this, and I'm thinking, man, I'm kind of glad I'm retired. <laughs> what in the world? And another guy on the West Coast, this is a guy from, from Illinois, another guy from San Diego says, I've got a meeting after our Zoom call is over. I've got a couple of elders and a couple of members of the church that have been my friends for 20 years. Right on track doctrinally, they believe rightly. But they have been mean. They have written very ugly things about me. They have openly questioned whether I'm even a follower of Christ. They have denied that I'm upholding the word of God. Uh, and and they, they're out for blood. He said, some of it's just mean. And he said, some of it, I, I hate, hesitate to say this, but some of it's just evil. Now, if you put them on a doctrinal test, they would believe every article of faith the way I do. But their belief, rightly fashioned, has nothing to do with their behavior unrighteously demonstrated. I don't know who you're reading, what blogs you're listening to or watching, what kind of podcast you listen to. The measure of whether or not you need to give them the time of day is whether or not there's a Christ-like character there. Too little of Christ. Complacency is being content to let the wrong things continue to exist. That's when we used the word enough of that. I just don't do that anymore. Why? Because we not only need to be content with the right things, we need to make sure that we get that flipped on the right side. So we'll see more about how to do that in a minute. But the second piece of this is when, when this backwards view comes in, we're discontented with the wrong stuff. We're discontented with things that God has given to us for our good. We're discontented with our job. We're discontented with our income. We're discontented with our home. We're discontented with our car. We're discontented with our wardrobe. We're even discontented with our marriage. We're discontented with our kids. We're discontented with our church. We're discontented with all these things. And God's going like, hello, I gave you those things. Don't be discontent with what I, the great God, found it important for you to have. Stop comparing yourself to what other people have. And rejoice in what I have caused you to have. Don't be discontent with the wrong things. Don't be discontent with the things that I have given you graciously. The world is offering you all kinds of stuff that has never satisfied and it's not going to start now. Don't be discontent with the wrong stuff. Dissatisfied with those things? No. No. He says, you've, you've got to get your world flipped upside down and back on track with Christ. Because the backwards way of seeing these things leads to discontentment, dissatisfaction, unrest, anxiety, all these other things which are awful for your soul. And Mark, you as one who is saying Jesus is Lord, but is living as if he were boxed in a cage somewhere and couldn't do anything about it. That's not our call, Paul says. That's not what it means to be a follower of Christ. So what has to happen? We need to get things straightened out through Christ. How do we do that? He says, you need to learn contentment. It's not a natural thing. You've got to figure it out according to the word of God. What I just outlined for you in verses 1 to 9, go back and look at it again and figure out how instead of placing the instead there, 
How do we put the enjoy these things? How do we, in verse 1, talk about the enjoyment of perseverance and standing firm? How do we talk about, verses 2 and 3, of peaceful relationships in the body of Christ? How do we go about praising and rejoicing in the things of God, in verse 4? Or or the patience and the persistence of a forbearing spirit, in verse 5? Or the peaceful way of praying, in verses 6 and 7? Or the profitable way of thinking, in verses 8 and 9? How do we put those in place? That's when we put things back in the right order. You put them in the right order. He says, then we're going to learn how to be content. That's when we find how to be content and discontent with the right stuff. What happens if we're discontent with the right things? That means that we're not willing to be satisfied with the present condition of our souls. I am ambitious, absolutely, but not for this world. I'm ambitious to be like Jesus wants me to be. He promised in chapter 1, verse 6, that he who began that good work in me will carry it through to completion on the day of Christ. I'm holding him to that by faith because he wants to do that. So I am not going to be satisfied with the condition of my soul until I'm in his presence and I have been made like him. So what does it look like? Well, there needs to be a holy discontentment in you. Where? Well, back in chapter 3. He says, if you're, if you're all right, if everything's fine, then why would I tell you in verses 12 to 14 of chapter 3 to press on? You haven't gotten it yet. You're not there. It hasn't been achieved. It hasn't been perfected, he says. So I will press on toward the goal of the prize of the upper call of God in Christ Jesus. That's what I want. I'm pressing on toward that. Why? Because I'm not satisfied to sit down right where I am and be satisfied that this is all God wants to do for me and in me and how he wants to transform me. I'm going to press on. That's when I'm discontent with where I am and I'm going to reach forward to what lies ahead. Colossians chapter 1. I am not satisfied with the state of the church. So therefore, I labor and strive together through the Spirit who according to His power is mightily working within me. Why? So that I can present everyone complete in Christ. I'm not satisfied until every last one of you, he says, is fully mature in Christ. Well, that's not going to happen this side of heaven. That's right. You're going to be in holy discontentment until heaven because you always want more of what God's doing. The word striving in this passage is, uh, is a word from which we get the English idea of agonizing, wrestling with this. He says, so I'm going to be wrestling about this. I'm going to be pouring myself into it. I'm going to be laboring together with you that we might present everyone complete in Christ. I'm not satisfied with a low state of the spiritual affairs of the people I know, including the guy I shave every morning. I'm not satisfied. I am not satisfied to just get it right most of the time. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 1. He commends the church there. He says, look, uh, you you have received from us instruction as to how you ought to walk and how you ought to please God, just as you actually are doing. Praise God for you. He says, I'm just telling you this, excel still more. How long is this going to go on, Paul, until you've been made complete, excellent in Christ? Excel still more. Keep pressing on. Keep striving and laboring together. That's what you need to do. Don't be content with your present condition. Be discontent with the right things. Fan your gifts into flame, he says in 2 Timothy 1.6. 
whatever has been ignited in you, keep pouring fuel on it and let the breath of the Spirit blow on it and just live a white-hot existence for Christ. Don't settle for anything less than a passion for Jesus and for the work that he's given you to do and the gifts he's given for you. Psalm 42, like a deer pants for the water, the brook streams of water, so my soul pants and longs for you, God. And we live in a world where members of the body of Christ can take Jesus or leave him, depending on whether or not the day's going the way they want it to. He says, no, 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 don't be satisfied with that. You live until you pant for Christ, until you are so thirsty you can't stand it. You've got to drink deeply from the fountain of living water. You've got to have that happen. So he says, listen, persist in these things. Gain more of Christ. Be dissatisfied with the state of your soul until you are made whole in Christ. Be discontent with the right things. Now, flip side, be content with the right things. Because there's a lot right. There's a lot that's right. You need to find your contentment in Christ. So what do you start with? You need to be content to be with Jesus. What does that look like? Well, in Matthew 11, Jesus says, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. Come to me. He says, I, I want you to be with me. He says, Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. I'm gentle and humble in heart. And then in both cases, he says, If you're weary and burdened, if you are uh, in need of, of finding your place in my presence, what's going to happen is you're going to find rest for your soul. You get with me. You draw near to the throne of God by his grace. Psalm 73 says, the nearness of God is my good. So get near to Christ. Lord, let me be content to be with Jesus. Confession time. It's great for the soul, horrible for the reputation, right? (laughs) But in in my quiet time, sometimes I I know what passage of Scripture I'm going to read that day. I've got a prayer list. I know which things I'm going to pray for that day. I can perform that duty without ever encountering Christ. It's hard, but I I never enter into his presence. I I never acknowledge that I have have come into the presence of the king of glory and and that that Jesus and I are together there. And so it becomes a a perfunctory duty rather than a fulfilling engagement of a relationship. Don't settle, he says. You You be content to be with Jesus before anything else. Get yourself with Christ. Second thing is you you be content to rest in his goodness. Psalm 116, verse 7, Return to your rest, O my soul, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. You don't think it's true, then take the old hymn, count your many blessings and name them one by one, and it'll surprise you what the Lord has done. Don't compare it to everybody else. Compare it to what God says to you. You find that you can find rest in his goodness. It will be good for your soul. Third thing, be content to be still. Psalm 46, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. But I'm not counting on you to spend your life being busy for Jesus. There are times when you need to be still. 
Another translation of those two words, be still, is to stop striving. See, striving. God's not impressed with how busy we keep people in churches. That's a great church. Everybody's there. It's busy, 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 busy for Jesus. When do they have time to be still? We make sure that never happens. <laughs> no. We, the churches don't do that. They don't expect you to do everything all the time. And if they do, they need to get a wake-up call from Jesus. That's not the calling. Sometimes we need to just be still. Let that be the contentment of our hearts. We're content to be still. Uh, fourth, we, we need to be content to not understand and still trust him. Proverbs 3, don't lean on your own understanding. All your ways acknowledge him. You don't have to understand to obey. We had to tell our kids that all the time growing up. Well, I don't understand why I did. Well, you don't have to understand, but you do have to obey. <laughs> well, I don't understand why. Yeah, my friend said, I, yeah, I, I get it. You don't have to understand, but you do have to obey. And so we have to be able to understand how to be content not to understand and still say, praise be to God. One of my favorite passages in, in the Minor Prophets is in Habakkuk chapter 3. He's, he says here, though the fig tree doesn't bud, there, there's no grapes on the vines. The olive crop fails. The fields produce no food. Though there's no sheep in the pens, no cattle in the fields. This sounds kind of desperate. He says, yet I will rejoice in the Lord and I will be joyful in God my Savior. Though there's COVID at the mall, though there is a problem at the bank, though there is unrest in my soul, though this is happening, though that is happening, yet I will rejoice in God my Savior. Why? Because I don't have to understand what he's doing to be able to be glad that I can trust him. Fifth thing, appreciate whatever my circumstances bring to me. I, I need to learn how to be content to appreciate those things, to give thanks for them. He says in verse 11 and 12, I, I'm not telling you these things so that you'll give me more. He says, I've learned to be content, learn to be content, learn to be content, whatever the circumstances. I, I know what it's like to be in need. I know what it's like to have plenty. I've learned the secret you hear that? This is not just everybody gets this right away. He says there's a secret to this. This is following God's plan. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. Jesus is enough, and my soul is content with him, whatever those circumstances are. And then the last picture, taking a couple of verses from the end of chapter 4. I need to be content to enjoy the abundance of his riches in glory in Christ. Look at verse 13. I can do how much through Christ? All things. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And my God, verse 19, shall supply all your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ. Wow. When I'm content with the right things, what happens? I rest in his peace with perfect contentment. So let me go back and ask the question we started off with. Are you a contented person? Are you content? I, I have to answer like I did at the beginning. Yes. Well, no. Sometimes, but not always. How do I get consistency? Paul outlines the way. This is how you learn to be content. Well, how big a deal is this? 
It's just this like, it's not a slight thing. It's sort of a, yeah, well, that sounds like upper level Christianity to me. It's a graduate course you're talking about there. No, there, there's not a junior varsity for the Christian faith. Uh, well, I'm on second string on the junior varsity. Well, stop it. Get on the varsity, get play first string, be out there, run the race to win, he says. So find that. Why? Because it does matter because it says to God, we trust you or we don't. We believe you or we don't. One author says it this way, sin is what you do when your heart's not satisfied with God. Want me to say that again or are you convicted enough like I was? Sin is what you do when your heart is not satisfied with God. What happens? If we're not satisfied with God, we start ad-libbing, improvising, coming up with our own game plan to try to satisfy our hearts, which says to God, I don't trust your way, God, and I know you mean well, but I got this. And then we realize we don't got this. And he's saying, hello, the Lord God Almighty wants to be your Savior, and he wants to be your Father, and he wants to be your Shepherd, he wants to be your king, and he doesn't want you to move him to the perimeter. He wants to be Lord of all. The world cannot satisfy you, and it cannot ever bring you contentment. Why do you keep going back to that dry well? Come, he says. Learn with me how to be content, whatever the situation of your soul, and find your contentment in Christ, because only he can satisfy completely and forever. Amen. Don't you want that? I'm tired of low living faith. And I'm tired of being complacent about that which God has a passion for. And I'm tired of being tired. It's time to rest in the contentment and the peace which surpasses all comprehension. Let's pray and ask God to do that. Father, do it here. May this church be a place that is known for the presence and the power and the peace and the contentment of Christ. That we are not bothered or worried about a thousand things because we are content to know the one thing that matters most, that Jesus is still Lord. So, Lord, we bow before you humbly. The only way we can bow before you, confessing to you that we need contentment from you. And we want to learn it at the feet of Jesus. It's in his name we pray and give you thanks for what you're going to do. Amen. Would you stand, please?